Hello, this is Robert Cartwright from the Institute of Classical Osteopathy. This podcast is about the research performed by Friar et al. over the last 20 plus years, particularly the attempts to reproduce the pioneering research by Denslow and Core in the 1940s, which attempted to elucidate the neurological mechanisms behind the osteopathic lesion, latterly named somatic dysfunction. In this podcast, I will mainly use the earlier verbiage of lesion, osteopathic lesion or osteopathic spinal lesion. I started this project after presenting a one-hour webinar on the research carried out by Denslow and Core in the 1940s, leading up to Core's seminal paper, The Neural Bases of the Osteopathic Lesion. After I did this presentation, I had a comment from a colleague of mine who's who I have massive respect for, uh, both his knowledge and experience, namely Mervyn Waldman. He liked the presentation and thought it was a good summary of the work at the time, but uh, was disappointed that I hadn't compared it and contrasted it to Friar et al.'s work over the last 20 years. We discussed this for a while, and and as I had a good knowledge of Denslow and Kaur's work from the 1940s, I was able to point out how very different this research was to Friar et al.'s and how this made most of their conclusions about the earlier work invalid. Whereas neither of us felt the 1940s work was complete and, as with any research, not without its own flaws, it certainly didn't invalidate the studies. I believe latterly, Friar et al. ended up concluding this as well. However, this isn't widely acknowledged and cause conclusions still appear to be the most biologically plausible explanations of what we observe at the clinical coalfaces osteopaths. To get a good understanding of this, you have to take a really deep dive into these studies to really get a proper comparison instead of just reading the abstract and conclusion, which is a lot of us don't always have the time to do these things and we just look at what's written at the beginning and the end of these papers. But Friar et al. published four papers where an attempt was made to reproduce Denslow and Core's work. Uh, and we're going to have a walk through these papers and uh, compare them to the reference papers by Denslow and Core. And this podcast will run through the reasons why this later work, although valid in some points in its own right, really didn't compare to the work from the 1940s. This analysis will highlight the areas of the comparison which were flawed. So what? I hear a lot of people saying, why does this matter? Well, it does matter because it has had a huge impact on osteopathic education, particularly in the UK over the last 20 years, stripping away vast tracts of valuable information that are clinically useful, which is then replaced with medical ideas, making a lot of current osteopathy indistinguishable from physiotherapy. I'm not knocking physiotherapy, it has its place but it's not osteopathy and as an osteopath that is what we're supposed to be doing we have professional educators stripping this content from our courses and relatively new graduates who have little experience of the real thing believing this is good for osteopathy as we moved into a purely evidence-based medicalized osteopathy which dismisses the principles such as enabling of the body's own self-healing capabilities, reducing what is a powerful therapeutic system of helping the patient find health to a musculoskeletal modality. 
If you ask a recent graduate what the difference between osteopathy and physiotherapy is, they often struggle to tell you, which is because of this. Osteopathy was and is an alternative to modern healthcare, and used correctly, it still can be. Obviously, medicine has moved on since Dill's day, and I myself have enjoyed the benefits of things like antibiotics when I've, I've had an infection and I've also had modern surgery. But there is a balance to be struck here, and that is allowing the use of modern medicines when absolutely necessary, but also enabling or supporting the body's own healing responses where and whenever we can. The original plan was to put all this into a paper and uh, I had a huge amount of help from both Mervyn and uh, another colleague and friend of Mervyn's called Alan Abessera um, who made me rewrite and rewrite and rewrite it until I got to the point where I didn't want to rewrite it anymore but I thought I'd put it together as a podcast as probably more people will listen to it than would read it from a journal. In the current climate of evidence-based medicine where the three pillars of EBM have become unbalanced with the scientific research pillar being used to overburden clinical experience, patient needs and expectations, one of the criticisms of osteopathy is not having a large or extensive research base. Surprisingly, osteopathy has a long history of research, probably even earlier than Andrew Taylor Still's exhumation of Indian graves and the experiments and dogs with the assistance of John Martin Littlejohn in an old barn on Osteopathy Avenue and at the American School of Osteopathy. Following this, there was a more organised investigations undertaken by Carl McConnell, Deason and Whiting where experimental lesions were induced in anaesthetised dogs and other small mammals and their effects explored in the local and segmentally or neurologically related tissues and viscera. Amongst these early osteopathic pioneers was Louisa Burns who developed far more efficient methodologies that didn't require the use of ether for inducing osteopathic spinal lesions or somatic dysfunctions into varying degrees or varying or varying degrees or varying levels of the spine. This was the hard science rather than the studies on facilitation that the early osteopathic profession needed and it helped the profession develop a biological understanding of the effects of the lesion on the spinal cord as well as on, as on the muscles and related viscera. After being brought back to health from a debilitating bout of meningitis, Louisa Burns dedicated her professional life to this research and in fact John Stedman Denslow, who was related to Andrew Taylor Still, Andrew Taylor Still through marriage, spent time at the AT Still Research Institute Laboratory in Sunny Slopes, California, and this inspired him. Denslow realised that the budding profession needed independently funded research to put osteopathy on the scientific map as a bona fide medical science. With this in mind, in 1938, Denslow approached the Carnegie Corporation of New York in an attempt to secure independent research funding and to hopefully make a place for osteopathy in the academic world. Even though this was initially unsuccessful, he made some helpful contacts, uh, particularly uh, Dr. Alan Gregg, who was uh, the Director of Medical Sciences at the Rockefeller Foundation. 
Dr. Gregg suggested that if he wanted to apply for research grants, he would he should be prepared to research the biological mechanisms that are involved in osteopathic theory and methods in order to build the scientific case for osteopathic theory and practice. Following on from these meetings to acquire research funds, an almost golden age of osteopathic research dawned, involving Denslow, Clough, Hassett, Krems and uh, Irvin Kaur at the research laboratory of the Still Memorial Research Trust in Kirksville. After Denslow started working as a researcher in, at, Kirksville Uni- at Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, there was heavy investment in the technical, in technically advanced new equipment for their research laboratories, including a Faraday room. Denslow also realised that both he and his colleagues needed to considerably improve their research methods that they'd need to use. As a result, they embarked upon a further two to three years of training with other experts in the field in the required research methods, including the use of electromyographic studies, or EMG, following which they felt ready to start their research. This then set the stage for the publication of the first paper out of the newly renamed Research Laboratory of the Still Memorial Research Trust in Kirksville by Denslow and Clough, and this paper was called Reflex Activity in Spinal Extensors. It was an attempt to determine whether the spinal extensor muscles related to lesion segments had differing resting EMG activity compared to nearby non-lesion segments. It was the start in a, in a process of biological investigations into the nature of somatic dysfunction or osteopathic lesion. This paper has been criticised for its methodology and the conclusions drawn from the results, partly after the attempt to reproduce the experiments by Hubbard and Fryer in 2002, where they investigated as a pilot study the electrical activity of tender resting paraspinal muscles using surface electromyography. Whereas Denslow and Clough's study was of its day and had its methodological flaws, the accuracy of the attempt to replicate the experiments by Hubbard and Fryer was poor on a number of points, some of a technical nature and others <clears throat> in not accurately reproducing the methodology used by Denslow and Clough as detailed in their original paper. The methodology used by Denslow and Clough and, their, and detailed in their paper included the sensor type and needle used, the equipment manufacturer and model used, the material used to make the recordings on, how the equipment was calibrated, the posture and placement of the subject, including the placement in a shielded room, the anatomical sites of somatic dysfunction and anatomical areas used as controls, how these two types of anatomical sites were selected, where the needle electrodes were inserted, hygienic and anaesthetic methods used, and what contractions were recorded and when during the respiration cycle. The methodology of the 1941 experiments was not clearly described. However, what was written should have been reasonably clear to reproduce in the pilot study by Hubbard and Fryer. In fact, their pilot study was not performed using similar equipment or the stated methodology. The following is a closer examination of some of these differences between Denzel and Clough's research methodology and that used by Hubbard and Fryer. 
and this may go some way to explaining the differences in the results as well as the nature of the reflexes examined. Different types of electrodes were employed by Hubbard and Fry, who used surface EMG electrodes, whereas previously mentioned Denslow and Clough used intramuscular or needle electrodes. With the surface EMG electrodes, the presence of crosstalk becomes a source of poor reliability because surface EMG techniques do not completely isolate EMG signals from a single muscle. In the thoracic spine, there are several layers of muscle, including trapezius, rhomboids, spinalis, longissimus and iliocostus muscles. Additional difference in their methodologies were the measurement of signal duration was different in that Denslow and Clough's experiments were carried out for much longer. Hubbard and Fry used a student osteopath to detect areas thought to be in lesion, despite the fact that Denslow had clearly stated that palp- palpatory detection needed to be performed by an experienced osteopath and one also knowledgeable in research methods. Students cannot be considered experts in, the fi- in their field or in that of research methodology. Hubbard and Fry make no mention of attempting to manually reduce artefact noise in the same way as Denslow and Clough did, where measurements were taken when the subject was completely relaxed between exhalation and inhalation. Denslow and Clough performed their experiments in a shielded room. It was assumed that this was the Faraday room in Kirksville. In their paper, Denslow and Clough found local reflex motor activity in 21 of the 25 experiments at the site of lesion. However, the criticism as to where Denslow and Clough draw their interpretations and conclusions has been questioned despite the fact that the description of the equipment, location and length of time of the study was clearly described in the paper, as were the results. More detail is always useful, but if what is clearly available is not followed in a pilot study attempting to reproduce those results, not least if using a whole range of different variables, then inevitably different results will ensue, and the fault can hardly light the door of Denslow and Clough. Denslow and Clough chose sites for investigation by palpating the spinous processes for asymmetry and adjacent edema. They were not palpating for lesion effects within muscles, but how a lesion may affect muscle. The failure to identify sites that were palpably different from surrounding soft tissues and may therefore display higher action potentials could be due to the use of students palpating muscles, a different protocol to that employed by Denslow and Clough. Even senior students have a very limited palpation experience and accuracy, and this has shown up time and time again in research, especially research done by students. The last few paragraphs of Hubbard and Fryer's paper and their conclusions are revealing in the way they highlight the problems associated with their study compared to Denslow's. In Hubbard and Fryer's study, their use of surface electrodes and the prevalence of crosstalk may relate to cardiac interference as there was a dominance of signal data being collected on the left side of the thoracic spine, even when the abnormal palpatory findings were on the right. In their study, students were performing the diagnostic palpation procedure and not experts as Denslow insisted was necessary. According to Hubbard and Fryer, specific muscle isolation was considered to be unimportant for this study. 
This is illogical as there are different muscles such as trapezius, rhomboids, splenius, cervicus, erector spinae, multifidus, etc. And all these have different nerve supplies. Given the above listed differences in methodological protocol, it is impossible to directly compare the two studies of Denzel and Clough with that of Hubbard and Fryer. Usually when Denslow and Irvin Kaur's work is quoted, the references are from one or all of the following five publications from the 1940s and the last from 1975. And these were Reflex Activity in Spinal Extensors, published in 1941, The Central Excitatory State Associated with Postural Abnormalities in 1942, the Polyphasic Action Currents of Motor Unit Complex, published in 1943, an analysis of the variability of spinal reflex thresholds in 1944, uh, quantitative studies of chronic facilitation in human motor neuron pools in 1947, and proprioceptors and somatic dysfunction uh, in 1975. EMG was a relatively new technology in the 1940s and not as advanced as it is today. During these first five publications by Denslow et al., the team at Still Memorial Research Trust were improving the use of it for this purpose and by 1941, Denslow stated that they had become quite adept and quite expert at using the technology. During the remaining years of the 1940s, they developed better and better techniques for the recording of muscle action potentials and some of these papers describe the methodology better than others but looking at them in total one can gain a reasonable description of their use calibration testing sensor type and placement as there was a lot of crossover and a lot of similarities a few years earlier in 1999 gary fryer published a paper called somatic dysfunction updating the concept In this paper, he drew attention to the deficiency in Kaur's neurological model, pointing out that the reflex activity of muscle spindles does not activate the sympathetic system. This was also mentioned in an an excellent review by Richard Van Buskirk in his 1990 Journal of the American Osteopathic Association article called Nociceptive Reflexes and Somatic Dysfunction, a model. In point of fact, Core does make space in his neurological model for nociceptive activity, as mentioned in his 1947 paper, The Neural Basis of the Osteopathic Lesion. However, probably with insufficient emphasis, it is particularly relevant to note that Denslow anaesthetized the skin over the spinous processes, which made no difference to the action potentials created at lesion segments when a pressure was applied to the SP between 1 and 7 kilograms with a pressure meter. The lesion segments remained at low threshold measurement. However, when he anaesthetized the spinous processes and their adjacent connective tissues, the reflex thresholds of lesion segments changed to a similar threshold to that of non-lesion segments. Attempting to reduce the nociceptive input into the central nervous system by the use of procaine and finding that the reflex threshold becomes similar to a non-lesion segment is strongly suggestive that the nociceptor is involved in the lesion process and would indicate attempts by Denslow to measure this 
was a consideration for his research. However, in this type of Newtonian, Cartesian, reductionist research, we're always trying to find a specific tissue. It appears as if core, with an understanding of osteopathic philosophy and principles which isn't constrained within the reductionist model wanted to allow himself a get out of jail card and added in his conclusion in the 1975 paper the following statement in proposing this rather large place for the muscle spindle in neural basis of the osteopathic lesion there is no intention of excluding or underemphasizing the roles of other sensory inputs or reflex mechanisms Almost certainly involved under various circumstances are impulses from a variety of receptors and pain endings, which is earlier language for nociceptors, which are in and around the joint structures in the ligaments, the tendons, fascia, skin and viscera. Muscle receptors other than the spindle may also be involved. Cor goes on to say, nor is it intended to imply that the spindle is the source of facilitation of segments in the spinal cord associated with osteopathic lesions. Unfortunately, Van Buskirk, in his assessment of the neurological model, thinking that Core was attributing, attributing all the effects of the somatic dysfunction, such as TART, tenderness asymmetry, range of motion changes and tissue texture, and tissue texture, sympathetic nervous system and immune system changes on muscle spindles also falls into this reductionist trap. As seen above, this was not, core, was not what Core wrote or what he was intending to get across. On the other hand, his paper is valuable in helping us understand or develop an understanding of how nociceptive input affects the sympathetic system. A useful reference in the 1999 paper by Fryer was Jalen Richardson. This paper comments on the role that transverse abdominis and the multifidus muscle make in stabilisation and protection of the lumbar spine, but have delayed or absent activity in people suffering from low back pain. In this group, polysegmental muscles such as erector spinae appear to substitute an increase in excitability. These findings by Jal and Richardson have been questioned in more recent years and their findings were also reported in people without low back pain. But if this is transferable to the thoracic spine, this could be a factor for the problems that Fryer encountered because needles were inserted into the multifidus muscles rather than the erector spinae mass. Therefore, Denslow may well have had an increase in the probability of finding activity in these polyphasic muscles due to their multi-segmental innovation. This is another fundamental difference in the methodology between Fryer's study and Denslow's studies. Examining different muscles with different functions to those of Denslow and Core, and a further reason for differing results could be due to the increase in excitability of the erector spinae caused by the somatic dysfunction and the loss of activity in the multifidus, as previously mentioned by uh, or previously proposed by Jolan Richardson. In 2004, Fryer et al. published a critical review of the literature, and this was titled paraspinal muscles and intervertebral dysfunction part one which was performed to assess the detection and nature of altered spinal tissue texture it proposed explanations for altered tissue texture evidence for the plausibility of paraspinal muscle spasm and evidence for muscle dysfunction associated with lower back pain
This paper states that the model most accepted in the field of osteopathy and still quoted in most osteopathic texts, at least by 2004, is Irvin Kaur's neurological concept of the facilitated segment, which is said to implicate the deep paraspinal musculature as the prime cause of restricted segmental mobility and tissue texture change. The references that this that were quoted in this were from Greenman, Principles of Manual Medicine, second edition, Dejiv, Anna and Shalwitz, an osteopathic approach to diagnosis and treatment, Chato, Muscle Energy Techniques, Kuchira and Kuchira, Osteopathic Principles and Practice, and Fred Mitchell's Muscle Energy Manual. And they used the sources by Denslow and Clough, their 1941 paper, Denslow and Court and Krems, 1947 paper, Denslow's 1943 paper and Denslow and Hassett's 1942 paper, oh, as well as uh, uh, Court and Wright's, uh, Court, Wright and Thomas's paper, The Effects of Experimental Myofascial Insults on Cutaneous Patterns of Sympathetic Activity in Man, which was from 1962, and also Court, Thomas and Wright's Patterns of Electrical Skin Resistance in Man. However, when the literature is re-examined, we note that these papers do not list the muscular changes as the prime cause of motion restriction. The first three are about examination of neuromuscular reflex relationships in spinal regions which have been diagnosed with somatic dysfunctional lesion or, or non-lesion by experienced examiners. The latter two are about a series of experiments concerned with pseudomotor changes relating to postural stresses and injections of saline into paraspinal soft tissue areas. This paper, Paraspinal Muscles in an Intervertebral Dysfunction, examined the criteria for palpatory assessment of lesion. A lot of researchers focused on the inter and intra examiner reliability of these signs of somatic dysfunction. And it appears that tenderness to palpation is acceptably reliable, whereas the other type findings of asymmetry of bony landmarks, range of motion abnormality, tissue texture changes and tenderness are less so. Unfortunately, a lot of these, this research is flawed due to the use of student osteopaths and student chiropractors who, again, by definition, are not experts in palpatory examination. And additionally, it has been mooted that are there problems associated with the use of the kappa coefficients in the analysis of this, these studies. The reliability of palpation for spinal tenderness has been supported by a number of studies referenced in this paper, including Bolin et al., which evaluated different approaches to identifying lumbar segmental abnormalities and found palpation for tenderness to be the most reliable reproducing good to excellent inter-examiner reliability. However, it was performed at a chiropractic college where use of students as examiners are likely and the Kappa coefficient was used. Hapka and Phelan, uh, their paper was performed at a chiropractic college where the use of students is likely. And Nielsen's paper, which was measuring cervical tenderness, showed acceptable tenderness scales for cervical examination. Christensen et al. used two experienced chiropractors but trained them to use a different examination procedure to their usual technique. 
They were given a four-hour training session and a short pilot series, including eight patients. This is a very small group, even for a pilot study, and does not infer that they were experts at this type of examination technique either. So all these papers have found it either difficult to assess other TARP findings, uh, but have either used student examiners or experimental examiners who have been taught a new technique, and this doesn't really create a firm foundation to build upon. The 2004 Friar at Our Review goes on to discuss tissue compliance devices, but concludes that until such devices have been shown to demonstrate high inter-examiner reliability and accuracy in determining tissue hardness in human subjects, they cannot be used as valid measures as a valid measure of manual palpation. The references used to corroborate this this study uh, either used devices to measure soft tissue compliance. Um, Denzelay wasn't on the soft tissues, he was on the spinous processes. Uh, they used attempts to assess new devices which measure soft tissue compliance. This wasn't what Denzelay's machine was for, it was for putting a measured pressure onto an SP. And devices were tested to use on non-biological materials such as foam, or which again is, uh, is irrelevant to uh, Core and Denslow's studies. Denslow's pressure meter was only being used to apply precisely measured force to a specific target, which were the SPs, to see what, to see at what pressure a measurable action potential could be elicited, which was measured on the EMG. It wasn't a measure of tissue compliance, and so this is a completely different tool or idea. This does demonstrate one of the problems with the peer review process as well. References collected and added which are inappropriately included rather than weeded out through the review process. And it's often through, um, dare I say, lazy reviewing when all these uh, um, references aren't thoroughly checked. Then they're left in the paper and people later go on to look at it and they quote the same papers and... uh, it kind of builds on a sort of incorrect foundation and often can lead science off at a tangential direction to the way the science should go, uh, which is hopefully towards a greater understanding of the science. The paper speculates about the etiology of the manipulable lesion with various authors implicating the paraspinal muscles, facet joints and the intervertebral discs as the underlying cause of motion restriction and tissue change. The paper goes on to state, the model most accepted in the field of osteopathy and still quoted in most osteopathic texts is Irvin Kaur's neurological neurological concept of the facilitated segment, which implicates deep paraspinal musculature as the prime cause of restricted segmental mobility and tissue change. This implication is incorrect as neither Core or Denslow state this in the references quoted. What Core said was that the segmentally related soft tissues such as muscles and connective tissues were a source of afferent feedback into the dorsal horn, not that they restrict mobility. Core actually calls the the osteopathic lesion a joint derangement in his seminal paper The Neural Basis of the Osteopathic Lesion. 
Core, however, in this paper is explicit in stating that it is not a study of the mechanical and etiological factors involved when he made this statement. It is our purpose in this paper to examine not the mechanical and etiological factors involved, but rather the fundamental basis for the principles uh, that are involved to be studied. There were several principles, and the, the, one of the principal studies was that these joint derangements have distant as well as local effects. Another was that they are related directly or indirectly to other pathological influences, and also to a smaller extent. Uh, the, the last principle was to report progress in their understanding thereof. If Core had concluded that the basis of the osteopathic lesion was muscular, he surely would have called his paper the muscular basis of the osteopathic lesion rather than the neural basis of the osteopathic lesion. In the section of the paper titled Proposed Explanations of Altered Tissue Texture Associated with Intervertebral Dysfunction, Fryer et al. state, From the 1940s to the 1960s, osteopathic researchers Denslow and Kaur et al. contributed or well, conducted studies that were claimed or that they claimed provided evidence of segmental spinal cord hyperactivity, which Denslow first called the central excitatory state. They reported evidence of increased segmental muscle activity and segmental sympathetic nervous system output at spinal levels associated with clinically detected segmental dysfunctions. Core developed the facilitated segment concept where he proposed that minor unanticipated trauma could produce a discordant barrage of afferent input in the spinal cord from muscle spindle proprioceptors. This discordant noise would enter the dorsal horn of the spinal cord and alter the firing thresholds and excitability of the interconnecting neurons, bringing the normally anonymous segment into view of the, seg of the central nervous system. All activity passing through that segment would become exaggerated and this produced an increased amount of nociception. Alpha and gamma motor activities, these segmental muscles and sympathetic output. This model attempted to explain the clinical findings of segmental dysfunction, tenderness and pain due to the facilitated ascending nociception, joint range of motion restricted, restriction due to the resistance of shortened and overactive muscles. This conclusion is incorrect and Friar et al. have misunderstood or misread this. What Core said was that the joint derangement of the osteopathic lesion sets up a central excitatory state and minor stimulus would cause action potentials into the segmentally related structures such as local muscles which due to the joint derangement were either tensioned or slackened to some degree. This proprioceptive and nociceptive information then feeds back into the dorsal horn. Fryeradow goes on to say, even Denslow had misgivings about their original research. In 1975, 34 years after the publication of his original article, Denslow conceded that not all palpable paraspinal tissue texture changes could be explained by muscle contra contraction. He suggested that it was possible that some inflammatory process may account for the abnormal tissues. 
Despite these admissions and the lack of corroborating evidence, Denslow's work is still commonly cited to support the theory of paraspinal muscle spasm. When Denslow, in this 1975 paper, discusses a point from his earlier research in 1947, which was called Quantitative Studies of Chronic Facilitation in Human Motor Neuron Pools, in my opinion, he's not conceding this point that Fryer at our state, because Denslow did not say that all paraspinal tissue texture changes could be explained by muscle contraction. Of course there are other causes of palpable changes in muscles, but they should be compared and contrasted to the other three cardinal signs of lesion. If the only abnormal finding is palpatory tonus change in muscle, it's unlikely to be caused by an osteopathic lesion. Denslow, in true scientific endeavour, rather than a kind of bedside confession, goes on to discuss other potential causes for these palpable changes. This wasn't included in the Fryer paper. Broadly, the conclusion of this paper is similar to that of Corwin Denslow's proposed in 1947 and commendably recommends that more EMG evidence to study action potential activity in the affected muscles is needed. This was a large and comprehensive piece of work by the authors and following part one came the 2006 paper by Friaretau, Paraspinal Muscles and Intervertebral Dysfunction, part two. In part two, the authors state, it has been proposed that these paraspinal muscles become overactive with abnormally increased and sustained contraction, interfere with normal intervertebral joint motion and become identifiable by palpation which is referenced to the neural basis of the osteopathic lesion by Irvin Kaur. This reference is incorrect. As previously mentioned, Kaur refers to the lesion as a joint derangement with associated neurological consequences on segmentally related structures. The muscles are not overactive. The, neurolog the neurology affecting them has a lowered threshold. Under the heading Electromyographic Examination of Tender and Abnormal to Palpation Paraspinal Regions, Friar et al. discussed the observation by Denslow et al. that lesion segments displayed paraspinal muscle spontaneous electrical activity at rest and provided support for the belief that sustained muscle contraction was associated with the manipulable lesion. As previously discussed, these studies are dated and inadequate and have not been verified by any study since. Friar et al. support this statement by uh, four references which are Denslow papers from the 1940s. It is, it is completely agreed that these studies are dated. Um, who else would say that they weren't? But in all attempts to recreate the results, none have followed the experiment, experimental method uh, explained in the original trials by Denslow and Core, which has led to a different set of results. What Core was saying was that resting muscle is electrically silent and that muscle innervated from a segment in lesion has aberrant motor and sensory feedback loops within the central nervous system, which may result in facilitation of the central nervous system, which causes random spiking of action potentials and will have a lowered threshold to additional input or stimulus. Another 2006 paper by Fryer et al. called The Electromyographic Activity of Thoracic Paraspinal Muscles Identified as Abnormal with Palpation was published 
and the objective of this paper was to compare the EMG activity of deep muscles in the paravertebral gutter, which were detected as abnormal to palpation and reported as tender by the subject with non-tender, normal to palpation muscles adjacent to these abnormal to palpation sites under a variety of experimental conditions. These conditions were different postures. This study mentions that the altered tissue texture in the paravertebral gutter region is a specific diagnostic feature of intervertebral somatic dysfunction. This is only partly correct as it is only one of the features of somatic dysfunctional lesion and needs to be correlated with other diagnostic findings, otherwise it would be unsafe as a diagnosis. However, this is an interesting study even though it was a small cohort of 12 subjects. Again, it, it misrepresents some of the previous research by Denslow et al. in as much as the equipment used was different, particularly the sensors. And an example of this was Slosberg's 1988 paper being mentioned, uh, which suggested that larger diameter needle sensors used in Denslow's research would cause more soft tissue disruption than the fine wire sensors used in this 2006 study. Of course this is true, but the fine wire sensors have to be inserted via a larger diameter needle, which is similar to the size of the needle that Denslow used, which is then withdrawn, and the fine wire sensor is left in place. Additionally, Denslow's research demonstrated that there was more spontaneous reflex muscle activity at the lesion segments than at the non-lesion segments, if, these, uh, if this spontaneous reflex muscle activity were just due to the needle size, there would be activity in all sites, whether there was the presence of the lesion or not. So the conclusion, this conclusion can't be drawn from the data. The three papers in this reference were Denslow and Clough 1941, Denslow uh, 1944 and Denslow and Kaur and Krems 1947. In these three studies by Denslow et al, the electrodes were also placed in the erector spinae mass. In this study by Fryer et al, the needles were inserted into either the semispinalis, multifidus or rot rotatoris, guided by ultrasound. These were a different location to Denslow and Core. Fryer et al state that due to shortcomings of the studies performed by Denslow et al, that there was a need to reinvestigate the EMG activity of paraspinal muscles underlying sites detected as abnormal to palpation using more modern techniques. Denslow is stated as saying in his 1975 paper, Pathophysiologic Evidence for the Osteopathic Lesion, the Known, the Unknown and the Controversial. However, following further experience with these methods and additional studies by other researchers, it was recognised that if sufficient care was used in bolstering the subject with pillows and sandbags, the EMG evidence of muscle contraction in some of the abnormal areas disappeared. Fryer et al. then state, in other words, under certain conditions, palpable abnormal tissue texture could not be caused by muscle contraction. Fryer et al. states Denslow saying, Denslow et al. reported that spontaneous activity occurred at abnormal segments, but rarely at segments that appeared normal to palpation. Many years after the 1941 study, 
However, Denslow wrote that on further attempts to repeat his original findings, abnormal spontaneous activity was not consistently detected and was often abolished when subjects were comfortably bolstered with pillows. Denslow quite clearly does not state that on further attempts to repeat his studies, uh, original findings, abnormal spontaneous activity was not consistently detected. Another point of interest here, though, is that repositioning the patients in certain positions to make them comfortable with pillows and bolsters, sometimes abolishing the spontaneous activity, would be indicative of the motor neuron reflex activity had been changed, and this was worth investigating. What was, noticed, what was noted by Denslow and not mentioned by Friaretau was that there, were, there was more to this phenomenon. Denslow stated that because they lost the EMG data due to the change to a more comfortable posture, they withdrew the EMG sensor needles and reinserted them several times. It was through this procedure that they were able to reacquire the differential between the normal and lesion areas and that they thought that they thought they'd lost. So the lesion didn't disappear, but by moving the subject, the tension in the muscle moved to a different part of it. The lesion was still there. Reinsertion of the needles also caused what are called insertion potentials, which was a brief flurry of action potentials from the sensor. The insertion potential is, is a non the insertion potentials in a non-lesion site would last approximately 50 to 30 seconds, whereas at a lesion site they would last much longer. And when they did settle down, slight stimulation of the skin uh, around the needle or the needle itself would reinitiate them again. And this didn't happen at the non-lesion sites. One of the criticisms in this paper from Friar et al was how Denslow set up and recorded the EMG data. EMG previously mentioned was a new technology in the 1940s and the team at Kirksville were developing new techniques during what was pioneering research. They didn't have years of previous use to fall back on. During the measurements taken, by, taken from Fryer et al.'s experiments, there was a large amount of variation of results between sensor sites under different conditions on the same individual and between different individuals. Lietau had a similar experience when examining deep thoracic paraspinal muscles with fine wire EMG techniques and multifidus displayed great variability within and between individuals and different patterns of activity at different spinal level levels. This is to be expected and would likely relate to biomechanical differences within individuals and the distribution of stresses and strains within postural types as well as possible stress or strain levels during different postures in addition to the increasing sensitivity of the modern EMG machines and sensors. The fine wire sensors can be highly variable in their readings uh, they give within the same muscle and therefore the raw results need to go through what is now called a normalization process. However normalization of EMG only started in 1954 which was several years after these, these studies by Denslow and Kaur. Friar et al. did criticize Denslow and Kaur for not using this normalization process. But it is also noted in Mark Halaki's 2012 paper that not all EMG requires normalization. 
However, when Denslow and Koratau were performing these studies, it was whether there was an actual action potential recorded or not that was noticed. Rather than the current equipment, which records all sorts of different readings, which have to be distinguished from each other, for example, Denslow would occasionally pick up a cardiac action potential. Additionally, in the 1940s, resting muscles was considered electrically silent on EMG, whereas now EMG can show that even resting muscle has continuous electrical activity. Therefore, normalisation would have been less relevant to Denslow's work than the current studies using more recent and different equipment. And on that note, Fryer does describe it as difficult to measure paraspinal activity and should be commended for his repeated attempts to try and replicate this work. Fryer et al.'s study results and conclusions are interesting though, as the highest values for EMG activity occurred at the abnormal palpation sites. I repeat, the highest values for EMG activity occurred at the abnormal palpation sites under all conditions studied but were most significant only in the seated position. This correlates with the studies by Denslow et al. Though the methods and equipment were different and Fryer et al. lend cautious support to the claim of Denslow and Clough of abnormal activity associated with palpable segmental change. What is confusing is the comparison of the two studies in the first place, as Denslow et al.'s paper, Quantitative Studies of Chronic Facilitation in Human Motor Neuron Pools, is a study of persistent motor neuron pool excitation, whereas electromyographic activity of thoracic paraspinal muscles, identified as abnormal with palpation, is a paper about the EMG study of muscles that were discovered to be abnormal to palpation. These are different subjects. In 2010, Fryer et al. published a paper in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association called Resting Electromyographic Activity of Deep Thoracic Transversospinalis Muscles Identified as Abnormal to Palpation. The object of this paper was to determine whether abnormal motor activity plays a role in deep paraspinal tissues that appeared abnormal to palpation. Fryer at our state on the first page of this paper, although the clinical concept of somatic dysfunction has been central to osteopathic manipulative medicine for more than a century, objective evidence for the pathophysiology of the proposed dysfunction and associated tissue texture abnormality is limited. Various models for the etiologic process of somatic dysfunction have attributed tissue texture abnormalities to overactivity of segmental musculature. And again, he incorrectly, or they incorrectly, reference cause neural basis of the osteopathic lesion for this statement. This statement is an incorrect interpretation of this paper, which actually says of the subject, Our experimental studies have demonstrated that closely and quantitatively correlated with lowered motor reflex thresholds are three other features of the lesion. One, altered... alteration in the texture of the tissue overlying the spinous processes, two, lowered pain threshold, and three, increased susceptibility to trauma. Core goes on to say that the likely causes of the palpable differences are, it is probable 
that these changes in texture are due to local changes in vasomotor activity, fluid balance, capillary permeability, trophic factors and other features which are directly or indirectly under the influence of the lateral horn cells of the sympathetic nervous system. Rather than Freyerdahl's assertion that tissue texture abnormalities due to overactivity of segmental musculature. Even though the core paper is dated, it comes across as far more biologically plausible. On page 5, Freyerdahl states, For example, earlier studies by Densler and colleagues examined the more lateral erector spiny muscles, but they did not describe the precise needle placement, location or depth. Although we measured the activity of the erector spiny immediately lateral to the paravertebral gutter sites, we used surface electrodes, which are more susceptible to crosstalk than the needle electrodes used by Denslow and colleagues. This is true. Denslow and Al didn't describe the placement of needles as thoroughly as Friar et al, but they did say which needles were used and the locations where they were placed, usually described as three centimetres and on one occasion five centimetres from the spinous processes in the erector spiny muscle. However, it is difficult to compare the information obtained from surface EMG electrodes to the type of equipment Denslow et al were using, which therefore again invalidates this comparison. And Fryer et al agrees with this as stated here. Thus, while the results of the present study do not concur with these early reports as a result of the different methodologies used, they do not invalidate the earlier studies either, and the inevitable further studies re-examining Denslow's investigation of the erector spinae's muscles may be warranted. Friar et al. also admit that the shorter periods of recording action potentials used in their experiments may have missed the very action potentials that Denslow et al. recorded. Similar criticism is made in this paper, as had been previously made and mentioned in the 2006 paper by Friar et al. This was the commentary that many years later, Denslow admitted that when attempting to position subjects so that they were comfortable that they lost the EMG signals, as mentioned earlier, and this was not correct as Denslow et al. would remove and reinsert the sensors until they had a continuation of the action, action potentials. Again, this was the pre-normalisation of EMG action potentials, whereas Fryer et al. had available far more sophisticated, sensitive EMG equipment. Specific calculations were required to, to clean up the data. Denslow et al. were very careful to take readings in a quiet, relaxed period between respiration and exhalation and between breaths before the onset of air hunger to minimise aberrant action potentials. Changes in muscle activity in different positions isn't surprising and supports the idea of placing a lesion in a position of ease to obtain relaxation of soft tissues. This would usually be by moving further into lesion and treatment modalities or technique has been developed from this observation. However, creating ease in the muscle may well help relieve pain, but is unlikely to have little or no effect on the other components of the lesion process which affect the autonomic nervous system.
such as vasomotion and immune activity, and therefore will not have the desired osteopathic effect of stimulating the body's own medicine chest. A further study within this set of studies was an attempt to reproduce the experiments of Denzel Etau's use of the pressure meter, which was developed as a prototype by the Kirksfield team and several improved versions were created. This allowed a graded pressure from 1 to 7 kilos to be accurately applied to a spinous process at either segments palpated as uh, lesioned or as normal. Reflex action potentials were then recorded via EMG. The areas of lesion had low threshold and would produce action uh, potentials at low pressures, whereas the non-lesion areas often did not respond to pressures up to 7 kilograms. However, pressure on a non-lesion segment could often produce reflex activity in areas of low threshold, say several segments away from the site where the pressure was applied. This may well be due to motion contamination at the sensor. However, if that was the case, the non-lesion site where the motion would have been greatest did not produce reflex action potentials. Therefore, the activity would have would have to be due to some other factor, such as lower central sensitization, as previously concluded by Denslow et al. The use of fine wire EMG electrodes does appear to be a problem. Likely with the improvements made in the sensitivity and advances in electrodes, more data is collected. However, more isn't always better as there is more noise from other artefacts such as cardiac muscle which can add unwanted, unwanted data. Denslow would often observe subjects from 65 to 117 minutes to allow observation of resting activity. Friar et al. collected their data from a two-second period. This is different. Friar et al. advises that we should be cautious after concluding that abnormal EMG activity is not present at abnormal to palpation sites as the present study required deep palpation and their attempts to direct the needle insertion into the area palpated could not be guaranteed. Additionally, they state that these tender areas could have other reasons for tenderness, such as myofascial trigger points. As I previously stated, palpation of tenderness alone is not a reliable clinical assessment, and TART components of lesion should be added to the differential diagnosis. Friaradal concludes, No difference in resting EMG activity were found in the deep paraspinal muscles underlying sites in the thoracic paravertebral gutter that were identified with, with palpation as either normal or abnormal. The results of this study do not support previous EMG investigations reported in the osteopathic medical literature, but earlier studies used different methodologies and examined different paraspinal muscles. Based on the current results, factors other than muscle activity may be responsible for the apparent abnormality of these deep tissues. And this could also be due to the somatics function not being caused by muscle overactivity as frequently suggested in this sequence of papers. Investigation of these regions for increased tissue fluid in inflammatory mediators is recommended. The different aims, methodologies, different equipment and different muscles studied 
make this study not comparable to earlier studies that were different and thus had different results. The conclusion that factors other than muscle activity being responsible for the abnormality of these deep tissues suggests that somatic function is not caused by muscle overactivity as suggested in this sequence of papers. In this paper, Fryer et al. have had a good attempt at trying to discover whether abnormal motor activity plays a role in deep paraspinal tissues that appear abnormal to palpation. However, there are factors which have acted against them and calculations required to filter out the additional artefact noise. However, as Fryer et al. has repeatedly stated, it is difficult to compare this study with the earlier studies of Denslow because because of this and because of the different methodology, the equipment used and different muscles studied and therefore does not invalidate these early, earlier experiments. The most recent article to be critical is the paper titled Acute Electromyographic Responses of Deep Thoracic Paraspinal Muscles to Spinal Manual Therapy Interventions, an experimental Randomized Crossover Study by Fryer et al. published in the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapies in 2017. The background to this paper investigates abnormal contraction of deep paravertebral muscles claimed to disturb motion at the segment. This is from Chato 2003, Denslow et al. 1947, Greenman 2003, Isaacson book out 2001. But the paper here is the Denslow and Core paper, Quantitative Studies of Chronic Facilitation in Human Motor Neuron Pools, which investigates the amount of facilitation in these low threshold segments by measuring reflex action potentials in the segmentally related muscles when a stimulus is applied to areas of non-lesion and lesion. No comment is made that joint motion changes may be the result of increased segmental muscle activity. Fryer et al. state, in the 1940s, Denslow, Court and colleagues investigated paraspinal muscles using needle electromyography and reported increased segmental activity at spinal levels associated with clinically detected segmental dysfunctions. And these were in the papers Denslow 1941, Denslow et al. 1947. Although the concept of muscle contraction as a cause of paraspinal tissue hardness remains popular, Fryer goes on, recent research using intramuscular fine wire EMG of the deep thoracic paravertebral muscles failed to find evidence of abnormal activity in regions detected as tender and abnormal to palpation within the paravertebral gutter. And the, the reference is Fryer et al from 2010. As previously mentioned in this article, this study by Fryer et al cannot be compared to Denslow's experiments as the equipment and methodology were different as were the muscles used to place the needles and previously Fryer et al concluded that the results of this study could not invalidate the earlier work of Denslow and Core because of this. This 2017 paper studies abnormal paraspinal muscles which are thought to affect joint range of movement before and after different types of manipulative technique are applied. Friar et al. 2017 states, although the concept 
of muscle contraction as a cause of paraspinal tissue hardness remains popular. Recent research using intramuscular fine wire EMG of the deep thoracic paraspinal muscles failed to find evidence of abnormal activity in regions detected as tender and abnormal to palpation with the paraprotable gutter. Referencing Friar et al. 2010. As previously mentioned in this article, this study by Friaradau cannot be compared to Denslow's experiments as the equipment and methodology were different, as were the muscles used to place the needles. Previously, Friaradau concluded that the results of this study could not invalidate the early work of Denslow and Core because of this. And in their previous research, Friaradau had lent cautious support to the work of Denslow and Core and their research findings. Denslow and Core 1947 is referenced, which is a study of a neural preload at the dorsal horn. This is a different study design and cannot be compared to this study, and comment is made with about joint motion changes being the result of increased segmental muscle activity. Fryer et al. explained in their 2010 paper that due to the methodological differences, they concluded that these experiments did not invalidate the earlier work of Denslow and Core. Uh, reference Denslow and Core 1947 quantitative studies of chronic facilitation in human motor neuron pools and have previously lent cautious support to Denslow and Core's work. This does not dismiss the earlier work but is a statement of appreciation. What Fryer's 27 paper does demonstrate is that a technique based approach at the site of lesion isn't a good strategy and the question should be asked why is the lesion there and those causes studied. In contrasting and concluding this long overdue critique, to summarise, I would say different types of electrodes were employed by Hubble and Fryer who used surface EMG or fine wire electrodes, whereas Denslow and, Core, Denslow and Clough and Core used larger intramuscular electrodes. The measurement of signal duration was different in that Denslow and Clough's experiments were carried out for much longer, some between 65 and 117 minutes duration. Hubbard and Fryer used a student osteopath to detect areas of lesion, despite the fact that Denslow had clearly stated that palpatory detection needed to be performed by an experienced osteopath with highly developed research skills. Skills. It is therefore not a role that can be undertaken by a student with limited palpatory experience and skills. Hubbard and Fryer make no mention of attempting to manually reduce artefact noise in the same way as did Denslow and Clough. To do this accurately, measurements were taken by Denslow and Clough when the subject was completely relaxed between exhalation and inhalation. The issue of artefact noise is important because it is far greater with the use of modern EMG equipment. This in turn creates the need to conduct procedures such as normalisation and complex analysis of results using algorithms, all of which differ to the methodology required by the work done by Denslow and Core. Denslow et al. performed their experiments in a shielded room to reduce electrical interference. It, it is assumed that this was the Faraday room in Kirksfield. Fryer does not mention reducing interference in this way. Fryer et al. repeatedly tested different muscles or explored different bodily functions and their needle placement sites were different from those of Denslow and Core. 
Friar and Al seem to have created a bit of a paradox in this, that the more they investigated using increasingly advanced equipment and complex algorithms, the less able they appeared to have been able to reproduce the results of Denslow and Kaur. In fact, in conclusion of the Friar's paper of 2017, he suggests further studies are required using even more advanced technology. Despite the criticism of Denslow and Core by Friar et al., they have never, nevertheless stated on several occasions that their work was, has not invalidated this fundamentally important earlier work. Unfortunately, these statements are not to be found in the conclusions, but are buried in the earlier content of the papers. Peer review articles are cited and used to validate other papers which in turn are used to validate further papers and our understanding of science increases. Earlier papers become the foundation that this latter science is based on. Friaradal has repeatedly miscompared their experiments to Denslow and Cause, which over the years shows how an error like this can perpetuate and influence future research education and lead the science of osteopathy and generations of osteopaths in a different direction. As a result, this important and valuable earlier work performed meticulously by Denzel and Kaur has, in our opinion, been dismissed incorrectly, unfairly and without grounding in scientific methodology. Without the accurate reproduction of the conditions used in the original experimental process, it is unjustified to discredit the results of the original research based on a comparison with subsequent research that has not faithfully followed the same methodology. Accurate and faithful reproducibility can and should be a fundamental criterion used in osteopathic education. For scientific results to be valid, they need to be reproducible so that performing the same experiments under the same conditions should harvest the same results. There are fundamental methodological differences between the experiments of Denslow and Kaur and those of Friar et al. For as long as the original works of Denslow and Kaur are dismissed on the unfounded grounds listed above, young graduates will remain ignorant of their immense clinical value and of the scientifically grounded place of osteopathy in the treatment of the sick patient. For those of you who have got to the end of this, thank you for bearing with me and uh, listening. I hope you've enjoyed this and uh, I hope you realise how important this, this is in osteopathic education and the future of osteopathy and the direction of osteopathic sciences. I'd like to thank Mervyn Waldman for his uh, help with this. Also, uh, Alan Abessera, who has been immensely helpful at putting this uh, information together. And uh, we were first going to put it into a, a peer-reviewed journal, but uh, I think more people will listen to it on here. If you'd like any more information about classical osteopathy, please do go to the Classical Osteopathy or the Institute of Classical Osteopathy website, which is www.classical-osteopathy.org. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>